everybody. This is Whiskey Web and Whatnot with myself, Robbie Wagner, and my co-host, as always, Charles William Carpenter III, with our guest today, Chris Garrett. How's it going, Chris? It's going well. You're actually named Chris, unlike most Chris's we have on here. Yeah, it's unique. We needed an actual Chris, (laughs) not those pretenders. Yeah. I mean, I I know so many Chris's, to be honest. Uh, It's like every single time I'm on a team, it's like, how long until Chris joins the team? Like... (laughs) At LinkedIn, I'm pretty sure there were four or five on our team. And then we just got the second Chris at Bitsky, like first double name, first person with the same name. So <laughs> it's just, it's like inevitable, to be honest. And this is why you've taken the internet pseudonym of Zarak. Yep. And taught me before the show how to say it. Yeah. <laughs> Zarak is uh, it's globally unique, unique identifier via Google. Honestly, like that could be an algorithm if it wasn't. That would probably be a very slow algorithm, but um, it works. Social engineering in a way. So I hear you have some news, Chris. You want to share it with us? Yeah, we uh, signed a uh, agreement to buy a house today. We we won an offer. Ooh, nice, nice. That's hard to do these days. Super excited about that. Yeah, no, it. there were 21 offers on this house. Oh, my God. <laughs> and this is in Alexandria? Arlington. Arlington, yeah. Right up there. It was insane. And we um, we actually were the number two offer. Like somebody bid above us. We were already bidding like well over asking. <laughs> so somebody bid above us all cash. God. And we won. I think it's because we wrote a really good offer letter. We were like really like we love the look of this house. We love everything about it. We want to like, you know, settle down, nest start our family, that kind of stuff. And I, I think it was from a, a, um, you know, a couple that had lived there for like 30, 40 years and had done the same thing. And so, you know, that sentimentality, like everybody else was, there was like so many developers scouting the place, like going to tear it down, just turn it into like a McMansion or something, you know? Yeah. That's become such a thing in the culture now. Like the writing a letter to the owners along with your offer and like just kind of talking about what you love about the place or whatever. That's like become such a norm, especially in like high markets like DC area. Yeah. I think sometimes it works in cases like this, but you know, we've also done that before and just had it. Nope. It's all about the money. (laughs) You know, they just don't care. Um, So it really depends. Also, like some people are cynical about it and like as sellers and are just like, I don't know who's lying to me, actually, you know? Yeah. Like who's lying and is just going to flip it anyway. Yeah, that's true. It's hard to tell sometimes. Yeah. Well, you weren't lying. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we might, you know, change a few things uh, here and there, but honestly, it's beautiful house. So congratulations. I'm just happy to, happy to get it. Yeah. Yeah. We should drink to that, I think. Yeah. I think so. That's, uh, I was like really happy to, you know, have uh, this podcast today. I was like, oh, it'd be a perfect way to celebrate. Yes. So today we have the Laws San Luis Valley Straight Rye Whiskey. Hold on, I'm going to have to look at my notes because I have a bad memory. Uh, looks like it's aged at least three years, has a ABV of 47.5% and is 90%, 95% heirloom rye and 5% heirloom barley. I know they were saying like it's... An heirloom grain. What is heirloom? I think it means they're not sourcing it, essentially. Like, it's old stuff since that they've been growing since the 30s. Hmm. 
semi-wild rye grain since the 30s. Yeah, which I thought was kind of cool. Be similar to um, like when you get heirloom tomatoes or something like that, right? Right, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I never even knew what that meant. I just thought it was sounded cool. Mm. <laughs> Perfuming. So with tomatoes, it's that, um, as I understand it, they, um, you know, they bred tomatoes for a long time to look a very specific way. And that's why we have like Roman tomatoes and they all look the same. They have, we have like beefsteak tomatoes or whatever. They all look the same. They're all red, you know, but like tomatoes weren't always that way. And heirloom tomatoes are kind of more like what they used to be like. And they're, they're so much better. They're like just this rich, complex flavor. Yeah. I find when you get heirloom stuff in general, there's a lot of that, you know, not always, but a lot of the time. Like heirloom rice is a thing too. I've tried that out. It's nice. Oh, kind of yeah. like halfway in between like wild rice and like super processed rice. Yeah. Sean Brock is like trying to do that big thing, like working with people bringing back South Carolina gold, right? Heirloom rice and all this crazy stuff. Yeah. Interesting. You got to watch some Netflix cooking shows or something. Definitely. This is interesting. This has like a licorice kind of smell to me. Yeah. There's a little of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's got a very interesting flavor. Yeah, I feel like there's some fruit of some kind. I can't decide what rind, a little citrus rind, maybe grapefruit rind or something. I think that. Mm. Yeah, because it's got some bitter to it. Hmm. This is very different, actually. So maybe those heirloom grains, maybe there's something to that. Yeah. Got a little musty, kind of. Yeah, I went back to my giant tumbler glass and ice Mm -hmm. because I had missed doing that. And I have this, you can't really tell over the internet, but this clear ice actually is fairly clear. Like the thing worked the way it said. So, Oh man. Yeah. I can't even see it. I didn't even think you had ice in there. I got the, (laughs) um, the circle, the sphere ice thing over the, over Christmas. So nice. nice. Trying that out. Still using the Norlin glass that I haven't broken. It's essentially like a, uh, it's like a normal Glencarn and then it has an extra layer on the outside so that you don't touch and warm the whiskey. Gotcha. Yeah. It works pretty well. They are fragile. I had to. Now I have this one. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I feel like double layer glasses like that are always a little, can be tricky. Mm-hmm. Like wine glasses that are like that too. Mm. Yeah. This is unique. It's got a little tart to it and get the bitter. The licorice smell. I don't know if anybody's finding other things. I still don't know the fruit. Read the back of the label. See what it says. Does it say? I remember it saying uh, mint. It says mint, anise, salted toffee, orange peel, fig. Hmm. And then finishes with a radiant serrano pepper spice. Fig might be what I'm smelling because it's not like a um, normal like fruit I would have every day. You don't eat figs every day? I actually have a no. palm fig in my front yard. So so back to the whiskey though. We'll have to we'll have to give it a rating. Yeah. I believe. So Chris, real Chris, you go first. <laughs> one to eight. Where's this one land for you? I'm gonna have to put this at like a seven point five. This is pretty nice. I definitely mm-hmm. would drink this on its own, and that's not every whiskey for me. Um I got another whiskey that was local recently. I was like, oh, cool. Get a local one from the the ABC store. That is new to me. I was mm. not uh, expecting that. And then I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Got to go to a specific store to get mm. <laughs> yeah. uh, alcohol here. Yeah. But yeah, I picked one up. 
and it was awful. So, <laughs> which one was that? Ironclad bourbon whiskey. Hmm. Oh, okay. Never heard of that one. I have not tried that one. We'll have to make sure to avoid it. Um, <laughs> you'll probably be heading into the city for some more choices here and there. Yeah, definitely. There's a phenomenal speakeasy, um, kind of, kind of near Mount Pleasant, I think, mm-hmm. um, that we went to. And if you're ever uh, in town, highly recommend that. I'm sometimes in town, so we'll have to we'll swap <laughs> some uh, some options. You got to go to the Jack Rose though, which is right there in Adams Morgan, right at the bottom of the hill okay. for Adams Morgan. It's like a library of whiskey. Okay. Like there's thousands of bottles there. It's amazing. And you can try some rare bottlings. They'll bust out stuff from like, you know, the forties and the all decades. You can get all kinds of crazy stuff. Definitely. I'll have to check it out. All right. Robert, hmm. how many tentacles would you give this? I don't know. So what is the mash bill again? This is mostly, mostly rye. Yeah. Like many ryes. It's not my favorite rye. I like it. I would say, I feel like I give everything a six, but I'm going to give it a six because it's not my favorite rye, but it's very good. I'm kind of feeling a six, seven kind of as well. Like, do we hate anything? I think it was like two whiskeys we hate. That's about it. Yeah. It's rare that it's below. If it's below six, you should probably never buy that whiskey. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And this is unique and different. And I've been wanting to try their stuff for a little while. So happy with how different it is it's got a light burn to it too even for like a lower proof i mean usually mm-hmm. below 100 for me is like eh, it's a little too much like water but this is this is this ticks a lot of the boxes so yeah i'll just go seven because i think i will tell my friends about it you should try this one it's good it's different you like rye well this isn't like other rye. this doesn't like it's heirloom. spice punch you in the mouth yeah it's got heirloom it's aromatic to me so yeah seven i'm going seven all right. Cool. What technology-like things were we going to discuss? Just lots of drama and, well, not necessarily drama, but, like, <laughs> the first thing I was going to ask about is, like, yes. I think your, like, reasons for leaving LinkedIn were not super drama-filled. I didn't want to go into, like, the specific things that some other people may have mentioned to us that had different experiences, but just wanted to hear a little bit about, you know, why you decided to leave and what brought you to your your new gig? Yeah, I, I can't speak to other people's experience, but I really did not have any drama at LinkedIn pretty much my entire tenure there. I really enjoyed working on the teams. I worked on everybody there was phenomenal. And I learned a ton, um, you know, working alongside Chris Selden, Rob Jackson, those guys taught me so, so much. Tom Dale was great as like a mentor, Dave Herman as well, especially, um, you know, really great guy, not really an ember guy uh, so maybe y'all aren't as familiar with him but he's like been on tc39 he he's been around for quite a while he's done a lot of things and he's like one of the principal engineers there now so nice. you know like david hamilton so many great people on all of the teams a uh, steph penner you know like so it, it was a good time oh chris Kreitcho, of course also he wasn't directly on my team but we worked together a lot yeah so yeah, it, I really enjoyed working at LinkedIn and I honestly could have stayed there indefinitely. And I think that's part of why I decided to leave, ironically. You know, I'm 31, uh, about to turn 32, buying a house, starting to, you know, think about settling down a bit, uh, maybe having a family. And at some point, you know, 
it's not really going to be an option to go to a startup in a crazy new technology space and um, just try to, you know, try something new, try something crazy, see if it works. So that was part of it. That was a big part of it was like, you know, this is the, an opportunity that's not going to present itself again. Eventually I could come back uh, either to LinkedIn or, you know, everybody was really open about that. If you ever are going to be looking again, like let us know. That's the best really to like walk away and not burn any bridges, have like the door open to you. It was a positive experience for everyone. So, and sorry not to interrupt you, but I'm like, oh yeah, that's golden right there. Absolutely. I really wanted to make sure that I left it in a good, good spot with everybody. And, uh, you know, or I could go to another corporate job probably at some point, but I wanted to give the startup thing a shot. Like really the startup thing. I was employee number eight, I think, at Bitsky, engineer number three. Oh, wow. So this is the smallest startup I've ever worked at. And we're at like 40 people now, almost 50, I think. We've been growing like crazy fast. Um, so it's it's been fun for sure. That was Reason one, reason two is I knew the team and I'd worked with them before. I worked with them at Ticketfly and also to the the co-founding engineers, Julian and Patrick Tesher, both very brilliant people that I learned a ton from in my early career. And, you know, I've kept in touch with over the years and they were telling me about the startup that they were working on and it started to take off with their series A. And I was like, you know, I'll, I'll listen, I'll, we got drinks and I, uh, they, they told me about the vision metaverse and all of that stuff. This is before it was like <laughs> the, uh, term everywhere, uh, that was being thrown around before all kind of in the middle of all the NFTs taking off, I would say, but it seemed interesting. I'd seen, I definitely think there is something there. And honestly, like I would never join a startup like this without really knowing the team. I wouldn't join a startup in general without really knowing the team. And so that opportunity is like very rare, like a great team, you know, along with like a technology you're interested in and like the right timing in your life, that's very rare combo. And then the last reason was because their stack is amazing. Like they're using Rust on the back end, which I love Rust as a language. And honestly, you know, I've worked with JavaScript for like 10 years now, and I don't ever want to become one of those one language devs. So I would like to be able to transition away from JavaScript at some point, or at least transition into like a multi kind of being able to work in multiple languages kind of space. And Rust is my top language to be able to do that. And it's an amazing language. It is really uh, phenomenal overall. It has so many great features like enums and rust are just like you can do so much with them and pattern matching like i love it so if i can use it to write wasm uh sooner rather than later i'm gonna try to <laughs> so you know opportunity to re-specialize opportunity to try something crazy and opportunity to do it with a bunch of people you know it's it was really hard to pass that up so yeah that's why i decided to do it nice yeah it makes sense that's similar to like when I started ShipShape, I was like, well, I can always run back to corporate America if I need to. And this doesn't work out, you know, so totally understand that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. That's a good like exit strategy. If you had to, like you said, not getting any younger. So you're going to become more risk adverse as time goes on, as I know, with home and kids and all that crazy stuff. So 
Yeah, that sounds good. Although somehow I still joined ShipShape a couple of years ago, so I don't know. <laughs> it's been going well. Yeah, it's been good. Robbie's a better salesman than he leads on. That's all. Yeah. No, really not. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So let's, yeah, let's, a couple of different interesting points there. Mm-hmm. I know Robbie has some notes he wants to dive into though, but like, yeah, not, I think every dev at some point, even if you are like, I love JavaScript and this is just, you know, I'm very happy working these things. You need to dip your toes into other ponds just to get like, what does it feel like on the other side? Yeah. Can I write something in another language every once in a while just to like, as long as it's not react. (laughs) That's not a language, first of all. Um, But also I do think you heirloom tomato. Yeah. It's an heirloom tomato from 2014. So I do think you should try those things though, too, even within your own space, right? Like you, Hey, you've tried react, you've tried view, you've tried Svelte. So don't pretend like you don't try these things. Yeah. Even within your own space, but trying another language and building something like with another way of thinking just kind of like shows you that shows you that you can the tools you have to problem solve. You can apply to another toolbox. Right. And I think that's really helpful. Yeah. And you also will learn things like I, we learned a lot from React, I would say at times, you know, I think. When hooks first started coming out, I was really looking at them to kind of try to understand what was valuable there. And out of that kind of came modifiers. And eventually, like what we were working on, unfortunately, didn't get it fully finished before I left LinkedIn. But like the, um, you know, resources and effects kind of ideas, I think we're trying to take the best parts of hooks. So I I do think it's easy to be like, "Ah, I don't need to like look at that. Like it's. But even even languages like COBOL, probably like old languages probably had or have interesting ideas. Rust took a ton of stuff from like functional programming that was super out of, you know, vogue for like for decades while object oriented programming was taking off. Mm. And I think that what Rust has taken has really done it well. Like it's more object oriented than, you know. I don't even know if you could really call it object oriented, but it's more object oriented than Haskell or something, right? Obviously, like super functional stuff. Mm. Sounds like Robbie's going to hate it. <laughs> he does not like functional programming as like a paradigm in general. So that's not necessarily in my experience. I mean, yes and no. So the thing that I complain about is like we spent years and years and years getting to like real classes in JavaScript. And as soon as we got there, everyone's like, no, fuck that. We don't want classes. Like functions are what you want. (laughs) So I disagree with that because I think JavaScript is JavaScript. Like there are certain parts of JavaScript that just are part of the programming model and part of the language and kind of always will be. I think if you want a functional programming language, then WASM is there and it's getting better and we can build for that, right? Like we can make new languages that are better and some people are trying. That's great. That's awesome. Elm is kind of like a middle ground, compiles the JavaScript, but at least you're doing your own language. Like it is, you can have guarantees there. You can do interesting things because of that with some limitations. Stuff like React hooks, it it's kind of the worst of both worlds to me because like <laughs> it's not really functional. There's state. You're kind of building up like closure state all over the place and you know uh, set state, use state, all of that stuff. Like it, it's not really that functional, but it is just functional enough to start tripping you up. And then yeah, you can't use all the great stuff we've learned about classes, all the 
great features that come with them. There's also just certain parts, I think, of, that classes are always going to be part of. I think they're going to become more integral than people realize. Like a lot of people have been, I'm still working on decorators at the moment. It's actually going up for stage three at the end of this month. So oh, nice. hopefully it happens. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like the omnibus bill at this point. It's just like, there's a lot of different sub features that could be broken out. And I'm trying to be like, no, no, we have to do them all at once. We have to. <laughs> uh, so we'll see. But a lot of people have been like, not very excited about them. I keep getting like random comments. Like, I don't see why we need decorators. <laughs> we could just embrace the beautiful functional nature of JavaScript. And I'm like, web components are going to be built on classes forever. And the best way to make web components, like to make classes better is with decorators. Right. <laughs> that makes them more declarative and have more things like functional programming. Plus, do you remember how excited we were about them like five years ago or whatever? Yeah. Like decorators in general we were like, yeah, these are amazing. Yeah. And we don't care because we're impatient and we jump on to the next cool, hot thing. They got shipped fast enough to matter. I don't know. And when you say we, you mean the people who don't do their homework and just like shiny things. Well, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not in the we like I just want to be a YAML developer. So I'm just <laughs> I'm just working on that slowly over time. To be fair, um, I really do um, like a lot of the functional stuff that's being added to the records and tuples. Those are awesome. I am really excited for those. There's a lot of really great features we can add. And I think if we were still stuck in the days of JavaScript, you having to iterate over things with for loops instead of like, you know, for each or map. Yeah. I think people forget like what it was like before functional concepts even started to become a thing. Right. And it was like really not great. <laughs> Let me present an alternative. It's not necessarily that we have forgotten. What has happened is that our industry has grown in an influx that is like doubling year after year after year. So it's sort of like percentage of people solving things now just didn't have to experience that. Yeah. Your normal for loop with uh, there's people that didn't have to Let do that. I equals zero plus plus. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like you had to plus plus iterate to keep track of your loop. There's tons of people that just never had to do that. They've had the luxury of many of these things. Listen, when I had to go to work without shoes uphill in the snow and build websites with tables. Oh, my God. And Photoshop like slices. OK, all that stuff. These are luxuries that some I, I was part of the whole like fighting to get CSS like as a whole separate file that you load in instead of being like all these CSS styles on tables. Oh, man. Yeah. So I remember. Mm, you mean like Tailwind? <laughs> well, no, these were just like styles, inline styles, inline styles all over the place. Yeah. So Tailwind. Mm. I'm really enjoying Tailwind, to be fair. Oh, I love Tailwind. I'm just giving him shit. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. He knows that I'm like, do I have to style something? I don't want to anymore. I'm done. <laughs> Everything is going to be native HTML. Yeah. Tailwind is great because you never have to think about styles again. Like I want a grid. All right. Grid, grid calls, go. Like it's a grid. I don't have to know the CSS grid. I don't have to remember all that stuff. And my CSS files that get exported are as small as possible. So I feel like the thing that makes it great is you can reduce the infinite space of CSS to like a much smaller, but still very large space. Like 
the grid system, right? Like the widths and everything, the predefined paddings mm-hmm. and whatnot, all being on a particular system. So you don't have to be like, oh, 157 pixels. It's mm. like, nope, there's like a certain number of like ones that are allowed and you just find the one that's closest to what you want. Right. And that's great. I still think there's certain places where I drop down into like low level CSS. I just don't want to be doing that for every little component. Mm-hmm. And I still also extract out common components using like Tailwinds. We have a plugin system at Bitsky, uh, a Bitsky Tailwind plugin that adds basically like our bootstrap on top of Tailwind. Makes a lot of sense to extract common functionality and whatnot into components. But like not having to do that for every little thing is great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I always give the example of like, you know, look at a code base that doesn't use Tailwind and just search for how many times like display flex is in your CSS and it's like, all right, 200 or whatever. Okay. So you won't save a lot of bytes, but like if you change that to just the class name flex, you save some, like it helps a little bit. Yeah. And it's, it's also just like boilerplate, right? Like going, adding the style, even if you're working in a framework that has single file components, like currently we're doing a lot of work with Svelte that lowers the friction significantly, but it's still, it's still like there. You know, you still have to go open your style tag, add a class, add display flex, add the class to the thing. And again, sometimes that's worth it. Sometimes it's like, oh, this class is going to be real custom. I'm going to do stuff here. But like in general, if you just need display flex, like utility classes are awesome. I don't have a strong opinion across these things. Mm. Because you won't style whether it's utility classes or real CSS. Or like you're like, yeah, someone else can style. Yeah, I try to do that as much as possible. I'm like, what has already been done? I want to reuse that. Let me just grab that here. And there we go. Yeah, I've had to do a lot of material, I would say recently, but it's been like a year. Well, I wasn't having to do very much material, but now I'm doing a little more feature work and material. Just grab the grid component and pass some weird props to it. And it does some magic. I don't know. Yeah. So I want to uh, bring up, I don't actually know. You can probably explain this better than the wording I'm going to come up with here, Chris. The uh, the tweet that you had linked me to that was the gist of it was like somebody was complaining that like Ember and Glimmer or something didn't like couldn't just be run in JavaScript or something. And like they wanted it to be like because we have HBS and whatever. And like they wanted to all be just JavaScript based or something. And you were like, that seems you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like they were their argument basically is they don't like the new template format, which was just recently accepted. That's really great to see. But they don't like that because they wanted to be able to like kind of do the view thing where or the react thing, uh, you know, where more so the view thing where you can just drop a view component onto a page and like just include it via the CDN or something, and you can just run it. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to have a pre-compile step. You don't need to compile out a custom syntax language. The React people would say, like, early on especially, I remember there were a lot of people who'd be like, oh, yeah, well, you, you don't have to use JSX. You can just, like, write the thing yourself. I knew one guy who wrote his entire app doing that. <laughs> Thought that was always a little weird. <laughs> but anyways, point is that Ember has never really, that's never really been a possibility with Ember. Because without including like the handlebars compiler, which you should not do, 
You should never do. It is not optimized for browsers. It is not meant to run in browsers. People who do run it in browsers for anything other than like a REPL, I very strongly disagree with doing that. <laughs> but some people do, and we have to support those APIs. But that's, I think that's really what it gets to is like, we have to support those APIs. Like supporting an alternate format that almost nobody should use, literally like the only use case that I think is a valid use case is a REPL for demonstrating Ember or your framework in general. So almost nobody should use it. And it's not going to be performant. It's not going to be fast. It's not ergonomic. Like they were like, oh yeah, it's definitely not going to be ergonomic, but we should support it anyways. I'm like, do you know how much work that is? <laughs> that is an insane amount of work to support this extra functionality that isn't going to be used. And if you want to, I, we built these primitives so that anybody could do it, right? Like anybody could go and build that functionality. You don't need to RFC it to Ember. You don't need to like have it be accepted by the core team. I feel like there's this thing in the community where people are like, oh, well, if the core team doesn't accept it, that means it's not official or whatever. And it's like, even if the core team accepts it, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get built. We Real people need to build it. They need to work it into their jobs. They need to work it into their lives, into their personal lives in a lot of cases. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. And it's really difficult to justify that cost when, again, the people who are even suggesting it aren't stepping up to do that work. Mm. They aren't stepping up to, like, to be a part of the solution. You know, this happened with... Uh, Glimmer native too, right? Like somebody wanted to have us support native script, but none of our companies were using it. Nobody was like able to justify it on the roadmap. We could have accepted the RFC, but nobody was going to actually build it. And that's, I kept saying to the person like, Hey, if you want it, start building it. And if we'll, we'll try to support you, we'll work with you. Like you can ask us questions. You can, we'll have that communication. If we need an API for some reason, we will expose it. We'll figure out a way to get it out there. And just once you start building it, like if it gets to a certain level of momentum, then it can become part of the framework. Then if, if there's desire in the community, if people are like, hey, actually we're using this. Glimmer Native is awesome. Like tons of apps are being built with it. Let's really officially support it. Great. That's the way the process should work, I, I think, in my opinion. Like it can't really be top down when you don't have the resources to make it top down entirely. Right. Like, yeah. So yeah, that was what that was all about. I think that's a caveat to open sources in general is that there's a lot of idea people. There's not a lot of execution. Right. They're like, mm -hmm. I really want this. I really need this. And then when it comes time to like, great, how are we going to build it? Everybody's like, I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. Do you have time? I don't have time. Yeah. And <laughs> Where's the time? Yeah, exactly. Where's time go? I don't know. <laughs> I would have some time, but I had some Netflix to watch. <laughs> no, but I mean, that is like idea originator is one thing. People being excited about it. The whole okay, great. That's another thing. And then getting effort. I mean, effort is, I think that's common in open source across the board. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, so it's an interesting thing to like, Think about it. Jest is so pervasive for unit tests in particular, but then like for testing across a lot of JavaScript these days. And then we learn what a week or two ago that like there's one guy kind of working on it. Facebook does nothing there. Oh, okay. You always assumed that since they kicked it off, they like are going to support it forever, but nope, that's not the reality. And that's not the reality in a lot of stuff. 
Like just because it mattered in a point in time doesn't mean it always matters. Right. So if you care, do something. It's kind of a problem. There's a writer that I've been following. I got her book, actually, um, Nadia Eggball. I think I, that's how you pronounce it. Her book is all about this. It's like about infrastructure, open source infrastructure, and how it has trouble getting funded and stuff. It's really like an interesting topic. I haven't actually read the book. It's on my list. But it's a huge problem. Like It's, it's kind of an economics problem when it comes down to it, because... Open source, I think there was a time when I believed and plenty of other people probably believed like, oh, this could be a new economy. Like we could do something, you know, people are collaborating in ways they never have before, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, no, it's kind of just an extension of capitalism. It's a way for people to just organize under the existing system. And usually the way it works is somebody basically gets their project like supported through some company, right? Like basically a company becomes the sponsor. Very rarely a company becomes, like the, the the project becomes a product, like fully. Red Hat, it's becoming more often like Cypress. But I always feel like there's that tension between what's best for the product and what's best for the community then, so. Yeah, there is. I mean. It just gets tricky. Vercel and Next.js. I mean, that's like very clear. Or Vercel and Svelte now. Mm, maybe, yeah, could be. We're waiting we're with bated breath on that one. Yeah. Something's going to go on there. It is usually, while that can be the case, it still is usually better than the alternative, which is like some random guy who's, or girl who's like just stuck there with it, you know, just not right getting compensated. And what's that XKCD comic? There's that XKCD comic where it's like all of the modern infrastructure, like stacked on top of each other, like one random project that's holding everything up. <laughs> yeah, and it's like some NPM project where they went rogue or something. I think it's probably a commentary on like what happened to Faker JS or something, right? Like that guy had like color JS and Faker JS, and he like basically broke them both on purpose. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that one was not great. But I think this one was more referring to like OpenSSL, for instance, where it's mm. just like it just wasn't being maintained, and then oops, major vulnerability, like <laughs> fundamental security flaw in like most of the web. <laughs> Like stuff like that, you know? Yeah. 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 That's an interesting perspective. I think in general, we've discussed this a couple of times before and like, I don't have the answer. No one really has the answer, but I think kind of what people have done so far, like in the case of LinkedIn per se, like they want to support Ember, right? So they hire a bunch of Ember core team members and like do that stuff, but they don't necessarily say like, here's a million dollars to Ember build it, you know, it's like, I think there needs to be more companies that step up and are like, you know, I, we use these open source packages. Here is money set aside for those packages and their maintenance. And like, you know, if there's a guy doing a ton of work on it that isn't employed there, <coughs> that should go to them, you know? Huh? Uh, oh, nothing. Yeah. Just, What'd you say? <laughs> you maintain a bunch of member packages. So you're a use case for this. Minor add-ons. Like it's different. It's, I'm not complaining about my my situation i'm just saying in general that open source is not sustainable because of that there are some projects that are kind of trying to trend that direction um there was henry Zhu, i think um for babel mm -hmm. i don't know if he's still doing it but he was for a while and he was making a decent living doing it evan you and view i'm pretty sure he's doing it full-time right yeah yeah so it's possible but yeah it's definitely not 
standard and it becomes, it can be a problem. Aren't they monetizing on other areas like view school or things like that too, though? So it's not like as direct one-to-one. Possibly. So yeah, you, you have things like that. So I have an interesting perspective too, because like Robbie a couple of different times has brought up the whole like, oh man, we've been in like such a sweet space for a little while with Ember. And then now things are changing and some people drop off and we're not getting as many people jumping on and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty interesting because you think about it like, you know, the common line there is just people are getting older, right? So like this group of people that really enjoyed working on this thing is now maybe aging out of it in a way. Like, oh, I just couldn't give it what I did before. It doesn't have a different sustainability model. Now what happens, right? Not as many people are jumping into it. There's not the same excitement or opportunity. And then it is what it is. It actually, that kind of dovetails nicely with um, what I'm kind of working on in a blog post. I think there have been several eras of JavaScript frameworks now. I'm saying there are four eras, really. There there was the the before times, like before JavaScript frameworks were a thing, right? <laughs> that was yeah. the dark ages, right? <laughs> then there was the first wave of frameworks, and that was Ember, but also Angular, Backbone, Knockout, like so many things. Mm-hmm. And really during that era, People were just kind of trying to figure it out. We had no idea what we were doing or building, like really. Ember one was all MVC, no components in sight, right? Like mm-hmm. same with Angular. Most of them were MVC, but then there was like MVVM. It was like, oh, let's copy what we're doing on the server right now and make it kind of like Rails because that's what's popular. Right. Then then there was just other random stuff like Meteor was trying to do. Mm. It's weird thing, you know, like there were so mm. many different experiments. <laughs> it's so rough. That's still alive, by the way, but I don't know what it is anymore. It's weird. Somebody bought it. So in like the like those guys all bailed for Apollo and then like they sold it to someone else. Hmm. Anyway, that's just a side note there. So it still lives and they're trying to iterate. Oh, Apollo is another example of an open source that became a business um, and is doing very well somehow. Mm-hmm. If you knew what they charge for Apollo Studio, you'd understand. I think we'll probably be using it soon. So their quotes are insane, like half million dollars a year kind of stuff. So they don't wait for companies to sponsor them. They say, you give us this money. Yeah, you're <laughs> locked in now. Yeah. Every, like, we're, we're the most pervasive, and you're locked. Oh, do you want observability? You could do some other things, but we give you a lot of it very easily. Here, try it. Here's the first ones for free. The next one costs you a lot. <laughs> hey, I mean, you know, develop a quality data layer with it, too, like, and nobody else has done it in the meantime. I mean, Ember Data came close, but it, I think it's still too tied to Ember. And that's mm. that was the first era of frameworks. Second era of frameworks, we have React, we have Vue, we have Svelte at the tail end of it. Everything in this era is like, oh, we're, we're scaling back because they saw that things in the first era just weren't working super well. There were a lot of issues. Nobody was really like happy with these all-in solutions that were trying to solve every problem. So they scaled back and they were like, we're just going to be view layer. We're just going to focus on the view layer, like everything else you can do. And honestly, like in retrospect, that was very much just like kind of a, a rhetorical thing, right? It was like they were selling themselves as that, but ultimately you were building a framework around said view layer. And it didn't like, it was not really interchangeable. Like the view layer was generally pretty like specific and you couldn't just swap it out easily. 
like at all. <laughs> but what was really important at the time was that fact that they were scaling back and just focusing on doing one thing and doing it well. And that was specifically figuring out the component model and figuring out how that works and everything. So, you know, that's that's kind of what got figured out during this era. And, you know, certain frameworks died off like Knockout, Backbone, certain frameworks adapted and kept up or tried to keep up, Ember, Angular. But that's mostly what era two was. And now we're in era three, which I just kind of really woke up to this year. I think we've been entering it the last couple of years, but it like accelerated this year. This era is, I think, dominated by all-in solutions again, specifically around server-side rendering. Like in the end, Meteor had it right. <laughs> like you, you do want your code to execute in both places. It gives you a ton of advantages. Like that is what we've been learning with SpellKit at Bitsky in the last year. Like it is phenomenal to be able to just add an endpoint to your app, your front-end app that can do things like have a secret key so you can communicate with mm. a API. You don't need to spin up a backend service. And you get all the benefits of a server-side rendered application with all of the benefits of a single-page app. It's like all the stuff that Rich Harris has been talking about recently. It is phenomenal. And honestly, it's it's part of the reason why like we started to move away from Ember at Bitsky. It's hard to justify, you know, a framework that doesn't have that capability or wasn't really built on that capability anymore, especially after having used it for a while. And, you know, Ember is, I would say, like catching up with the component side of things. That's definitely there with the single file components and everything now. But now we're talking about like, rethinking SSR and making that much more centric. We're talking about probably rethinking routing. We're talking about rethinking data loading and whatnot. And it's it's going to be a lot. If I had the time to be able to work on it for the next year or two, I think maybe we could get there. But I just don't have that time and we need to build a product now. So now I have two comments. So as I say, like, first of all, I'm going to like dive right into that one. Like, why? other than you have emotional investment, if something's already solving your problem, right? And the best tool for the job is sort of always the rhetoric and engineering is like, don't get emotionally tied to what you're using, solve the use case, solve the business need, do those things, use your tools as an engineer and what's available to you. And if it's not there, then you start to like create it, right? And that's how these things all come to fruition. So I would already say like, yeah, but do you need to spend a year to make Ember be what you want? Or can you use the thing that is already there? Yeah. is one thing. And then, you know, conversely, on the other hand of things, I feel like there's like a whole new framework slash browser wars. I always call it like the browser wars, but like browser wars aren't really a thing anymore. So like there's the framework wars over a few iterations. So now we're in three, we're probably in like another framework war in a way because you have like next solving a very specific problem and attacking a very specific vertical. Remix seems to be trying to do similar things and be fast and and be somewhat full stacky and, and do whatnot. SvelteKit, see, there we go. I didn't realize some of these things about SvelteKit. So thanks for like illuminating that for me. So that also feels like there's another big player in the space. Uh Like, here we go. First of all, we realize the server does a lot of great things for us, so let's not eliminate it. 
but also like, let's take our learnings and take a next stage forward. I also think that a huge component here is the change in the platform. Mm. Cloudflare workers, edge workers, Vercel, mm. Netlify. Like, yeah. I didn't understand workers at first. I didn't understand them until we started building this stuff, to be honest. Like, I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Like, it makes SSR better, but it always just felt like, oh, that's just an optimization to me. I didn't understand that it fundamentally changes the dynamics of writing web applications. Like, I remember I was like two or three months into working with SvelteKit, and I was like, this is the way I sh all web apps should have always been built. Like, I was doing stuff like adding authorization headers, doing OAuth in the server and in Cloudflare workers so that we could have an OAuth like proxy, essentially, like have our API proxy, take a user's cookie, turn it into an actual authorization token, which is encrypted, stored in Cloudflare KV, and send it to the actual backend. And that's something that you just could not ever do yeah. with a traditional single page app. Well, I mean, I think it's on the shoulders of our predecessors, right? Like you said, we had to do all these things to sort of like circle around and figure out what was actually possible. And then also to force like yeah. technology to catch up and everything in between. So you could do like, I guess it wasn't like, you know, serverless stuff at the time, but you could run like cloud functions on like Firebase and like stuff way before this was a thing. And like, I remember doing that because I didn't want to spend the time to make an actual backend. So I would write like a couple things that would do a little bit of auth stuff like in their cloud functions and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, people have been thinking about this for a long time, but now we're actually at being able to use it well. Yeah. It's funny because I remember when like Cloudflare, Cloudflare workers were introduced. <laughs> Take it a little slower, Carpenter. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this sounds really cool what the fuck am I going to do with this though? Like, <laughs> yeah. right. You know, yeah. like I need people smarter than me to actually like show me how to implement and then go from there. Like I am not an, er well, yeah, I'm not an early adopter, but I can recognize the utility and a bunch of things that come out. Like we talk about all this web three stuff, right? Like I recognize the utility and the stuff. I don't want an ape drawing, but I absolutely <laughs> oh, I, I do see not. where some of these things are useful. And I, I have friends in the space and, and like, so I'm going to be a little sensitive to that. Like they're doing smart stuff. They're also better investors than I am. So I'll just leave it at that. But from a technology standpoint, I see a ton of utility here. Yeah. yeah. I can't wait till these smart people show me what the hell to do with it. <laughs> That's where I'm at about it. Like, honestly, I feel like there is rampant speculation in the space right now. Lots of, you know, rug pulls, lots of terrible practices yeah. financially. Like, mm. I love the excitement. I don't think that it is realistic. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the, I, I'm still not even sold necessarily on like the true Web3, like decentralized internet ideas. I think they're cool. I think they're worth exploring for sure. Yeah. But I think a lot of the value is going to end up being very incremental. It's like using new systems to iterate on existing systems that do the, the same thing, but not as well, not as securely. Right. And not as, not in a way where it's decentralized enough that like new companies can enter the fray, can like try to compete. Um, that's something right now, like, Perfect example for NFT use case, buying movies on like Apple movies or like Amazon, right? 
I buy that movie. I it's stuck there. I can't take it anywhere else. I can't use it anywhere else. Yeah. And that's a good one. That kind of sucks, especially when Apple's like, oh, I'm going to actually revoke that from you. You know, mm. that has happened to people. It's a real thing because they lose like the, the rights or whatever. So being able to take that potentially and transfer it somewhere else, that would be great. Right. Yeah. If you decide like, I don't. I don't want to be stuck on Apple TV. I want to go over to Amazon Prime and take advantage of my storage there. I want to take my library with me. Why can't I do that, right? Like there's MP3s have a physicality in a way in that you can have them locally stored on your hard drive. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Oh, that that's a pretty good one. I've been using the Wine Club use case that Kevin Rose mentioned a couple of months ago. And the whole thing like my Wine Club membership is basically an email on a list and there's lots of people after me on the list. And if I delete myself from said list, now next person comes up. But it should be a commodity that I got on there at some point. People want this wine club thing. I can now sell my membership. And also the winery gets a portion of the proceeds when I do so. So it's a win-win. Like, why wouldn't they allow that? Yeah. I think that's a pretty good one, too. I like that. There was a mortgage done in Florida mm-hmm. on NFTs. Wow. Yeah, it's an NFT mortgage, which I think is good. Well, so I think, uh, sorry, not the mortgage, but the title. The deed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the deed is on an NFT and you could associate things to that NFT. So you can start to attach like a trail to that. Yeah. Like we fixed the roof. <laughs> yeah. We replaced the roof. And now, you know, I don't need to keep a stupid paper receipt or you trust me. Right. Like. People die and then they forget and then family's trying to resell and they're like, we don't know. The blockchain knows though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I would go that I would trust it that far yet, but we'll see. I mean, that's why Bitsky is like getting into the space, you know, like there's a lot of wallets out there that are very like trying their best and doing a good job, but like they're not security wise like managing your own keys and stuff it, it, it's very tricky yeah. to do and people lose their keys all the time and for your average consumer like you may want something a bit more secure we're a full oauth provider like we are your keys are securely kept hmm. behind like a full authentication system and they're kept and signed with like hardware signers like uh hsms uh it's like what banks use for signing things so we don't actually know your keys. We can just re-derive your keys with a part you know, which is like your password and stuff, and a part we know. So we never actually know your keys, but we keep your keys fully secure. B-I-T-S-K-I? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I went to the website real quick, which is <laughs> which is pretty cool. I want those sneaks. How can I get those sneaks? I think it was more conceptual than actually an NFT. Mm, it doesn't exist. We have a new marketing page that's going to be coming up that'll have, but that will feature actual NFTs. So. Okay. Yeah, I've used uh, Bitski because it's, I guess, the... I don't know if you guys are official partners, but like with the candy stuff, like the Gary Vaynerchuk's uh, stuff. So I've bought like the football NFTs on there. Nice. And it's like, it's easy because there's only say a hundred or whatever. So you have to like be able to quickly get in and you can just use a credit card. Unlike most things, it's like buy it, got it. Like yeah. it makes it easy, but yeah, the there's definitely a lot of people in this space and I have no idea like wh- who's going to be the winners in the end. But yeah, like I think this is the only one that I don't have to like buy Ethereum on Coinbase, transfer it somewhere, pay a bunch of gas fees, do a bunch of stupid stuff. 
Mm. I think there are m- more that are getting there. Yeah, Recur maybe is doing that, I think. They announced some stuff, but NFTU. Yeah. I think we were one of the first to figure that out, but I do think a lot of others, especially during the the boom, caught up and are doing that. Like Candy has their own thing they're doing with Palm now. They work with us occasionally still for like their bigger drops and whatnot, but they have their own thing too. And you know, it's it's an evolving space. But mm-hmm. that was a big part of the reason also why I joined Bitsky was I, I think like the vision of like people are gonna want to interact with web three in a what web two way for a while at least, right? Mm-hmm. Until we figure out all the details. We are still iterating on OAuth. It took us a long time to figure out web two fully, like and mm-hmm. securely. And like we just got everybody onto like SSL and like DNS over SSL and like <laughs> a lot of other things. So I think it'll be a while before we really figure out web three to the extent where your average person can just do whatever and not really think about it and it'll be fine. All right, Robbie. Yeah. Are you ready to shut down ShipShape and we'll just join Bitsky? <laughs> They've got some positions open. A lot of people have positions open. I mean, <laughs> if it's about making the most money, we're probably doing it wrong. Oh, well. But, uh, <laughs> well, so you, I don't think you're senior though. Are they going to join? Are they going to allow Robbie to join as a, uh, maybe mid level? <laughs> front engineer i mean if it's rust i'm a junior like <laughs> well the front end is spelt um so yeah i can do spelt okay shepherd okay. is in spelt yeah you're mid-level perfect yeah but we've talked a lot about technology mm. for a while now so we should spend at least a couple of minutes on not technology yeah so yeah like you've decided to put down roots here like what do you like about, like, how does it compare East Coast versus West Coast? Like, what are you liking in the area? Well, you know, while the market here is insane, uh, I like the fact that it is not nearly as insane as, like, Berkeley, California, which was, <laughs> mm-hmm. I love Berkeley, man. But we Tax were, rate isn't great, but it's lower than Berkeley. Yeah. <laughs> we loved Berkeley. We would definitely have, like, bought a house there if we could get something more than, like, a shoebox, you know, for less than, like, a million dollars. So... That's part of it for sure, but there's a lot to it. I really like DC, the city. Uh, it's a beautiful city. I really like the atmosphere. You know, I never, I always thought DC is just kind of like where the government happens. Like I never thought of it as like a place you you go to live that has its own like culture and like mm-hmm. you know like New York City, right, or like Chicago or like San Francisco. I never really thought of DC as like one of those places for some reason. And then when I went there, I was like, wow. There's so much here. It's not just like the mall and like, mm. you know, th- there is so many cool people, so many cool places. I'm really happy my wife's not going to listen to this because like <laughs> she pines after DC. Like, so we lived there for seven years and she misses it a lot. You can move back. Yeah, <laughs> we could. You'll only have 21 other offers on the house you want to buy. Mm-hmm. Perfect. <laughs> I can tell you if I, yeah. We're not moving back because she wants to live in the city. And I'm like, oh, let's go to Middleburg like Robbie. I don't know. Yeah. Because I am not dealing with 21 offers. Hey, you can buy my house and we'll move back to the city. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be a funny exchange. We'll work it out. Can I just uh, give you some stock options? Yeah, you can give give some of your equity back to me and uh, you can have my house. That'll work. (laughs) All right. I'll talk to Sarah. We'll work this out. (laughs) Chris. I lived there for seven years and I'm way more cool than Robbie. So 
if you want to talk about like things to do in the city, like I lived in the city the whole time too. So I wasn't yeah, bridge and tunnel. I was in Alexandria and we didn't go in the city that much. I don't mean that derogatory, but us city folk called y'all bridge and tunnel. And so I lived like 16th and U for a while, lived in Capitol Hill for a while, Navy Yard for a while. Lots of cool things going on. So I'm happy to suggest things across the board. Absolutely. Uh, definitely open to suggestions. Especially the cool places to get whiskey too, to both buy and to just like the bars and restaurants to try out too. I'll definitely let you know. We're actually kind of doing like an elimination diet at the moment just to try to find some food sensitivities. Um, so we haven't been going out much, but when we do, I will let you know. Yeah. I've done some of that too. So, FODMAP stuff or whatever or what? Yes. The FODMAP diet thing. Yeah. We've both had, Liz and I both had like, you know, some sensitivities and we figured, you know, just give it a shot, try it out, see if we can find anything so far. Not really much, but like, yeah. 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 I found like, um, onions actually. Oh, wow. That sucks. Yeah. That sucks so much. Yeah. Onions are in everything. Yeah. They're in everything. And eggs. And I just started not caring at a certain point, but <laughs> that's where I would be if it was onions or garlic for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a fun adventure. But yeah. Really liking it. Really liking the seasons. Like winter it just kind of sucks, but the snow's cool. And the fact that I don't have to drive in the snow or commute in the snow because mm-hmm. I can just work from home. Yeah. That's very cool. And then the fact like right now coming back to spring almost right. Like starting to get there. Like it makes that so much more than like in California. Cause it's just like, Oh, it's starting to get slightly warmer. Cool. <laughs> yeah. It was already warm. Now it's a little warmer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I would say wineries in the spring. Very cool. There's some beautiful, like expansive wineries yeah. out in Virginia. I can probably see one from where I am right now. Yeah. So there's that. Not quite, but. <laughs> and then, um, the cherry blossom festival. So if you're like there for the first, you got to do cherry blossom. Especially since like it doesn't have to be like time specifically. You can wait till they actually bloom and then go ride around. From Alexandria, you can take the water taxi when the oh, yeah. cherry blossoms bloom Ooh. and you can go right to it. Fun fact. We should probably do that because we'll be in Arlington after this. So we'll have that opportunity as much anymore. There you go. So those were a donation from Japan in like the early 20th century to National Geographic Society. And they planted them all around. The original ones are all around the Jefferson Memorial. Hmm. So I used to work for Nat Geo. I don't know if you remember that from last time. And so like I have a bunch of those weird factoids. I think I do remember that. Yeah, that, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I would wander the halls of National Geographic grabbing <laughs> random old issues and reading stuff. Nice. Totally. It was fun at the time. Before those, the, uh, oh, I can't remember. Anyway, 21st Century Fox took over. And then it kind of changed. Yeah. Cultural difference. They started putting, like, security things in. And the Murdochs. It was the Murdochs. I blame them. Did you have to swipe out? Yeah. Swipe in and out. Stupid. Mm, I hate that. Yep. I hate that. Yeah. We're like, what's going on? And most of the engineering team were overseas. They, like, started firing people. And then there was just a management group and it was like, oh, okay, nobody works here. We just tell other people what to do. Yeah. I feel like mergers suck in general. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how it's been since Disney. Disney can do no wrong. Just keep 
keep doing the Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Except for they are apparently supporting the uh, Don't Say Gay bill. And I'm like, uh, I don't know about that. Mm. Or supporting people who support it. Mm. Something like that. Okay, well, let me rephrase. When their content they put out, they can do no wrong. <laughs> right, there we go. The fact that they own Marvel and Star yeah. Wars, they basically own my childhood. And so it's a... It's a tough struggle. Kind of hard to beat that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've been watching, um, actually, have you heard of Owl House? No. Mm -hmm. It's how I found out about this because the creator was just talking about it. But um, it is a phenomenal show on Disney. It's a cartoon, but like. Owl House? The Owl House. Yeah. It's kind of like. Owl. Oh, like Hoot Hoot. Yes, exactly. (laughs) There's actually a character named Hootie who does that a lot. <laughs> is it appropriate for children? Should I share this yeah. with my son? Or okay. okay. Yeah, I would say um, maybe like, you know, like eight to 10, not like young, young children, but like here, I'll, I'll, I'll share a clip with you guys that'll describe it pretty perfectly. It's like, <laughs> it's like making fun of the sorting hat from Harry Potter. Think of it like, kind of like a slightly irreverent Harry Potter. It's great. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm into it. It's a phenomenal little show, and it, it kind of made me disappointed. because it, <laughs> It's phenomenal and disappointing all at the same time. <laughs> well, it's quite LGBT friendly. And then, you know, like the fact that Disney just doesn't care enough to not, you know, it's, I don't know. I think that Disney over time has had a very strange moral stance anyway. All kinds of things, right? Like princesses who none of them have mothers so they're in florida and california so they're very confused about where mm-hmm. they're, they're <laughs> where they stand no no <laughs> so they're in orange county let's be clear so that's that's not the same as southern california yes I, but still florida is just yeah well i'm not going to get into my feelings on florida but <laughs> they're they're not good you won't be retiring there is what you're saying no no there's still a lot of time <laughs> listen tampa's nice you can get a sailboat. Mm. Yeah, I think I was listening to a previous podcast earlier today where you had said like Tampa is like saying is like, yeah, it's Florida, but like a little better or something like that. It's basically like that. Exactly. That's what Tampa is. It's like yeah. it's Florida, but not so bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like Arizona. where are like, I don't know. Some of those people are dying, right? Yeah, I mean, eventually. Some of Arizona's nice. I've I've met pretty cool people in Phoenix. I live here. Do I not count? (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I used to live there, but now I live here. All righty. For some reason, I thought you lived on the East Coast still. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, no. Yeah, even last time, I think, actually. Yeah. It's still like lunchtime where Chuck is. Yeah, it's lunchtime and I'm... I'm not drunk. I might be a little drunk. It's okay. I've been on a healthier diet, which means like two whiskeys will do the job. I'm going to go home and my wife is going to be like, hey, take part with the kids. I don't want to. I want more whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not going <laughs> to Want more whiskey. That sounds very aggressive, actually. That's not, not how our relationship is. Jeez, old Robbie. Yeah. No. Yeah, no, I'm I'm getting my whiskey in because at any moment I'm going to have to drive to the hospital because we're two weeks out from birth at this point. So congrats. Thanks. Mm-hmm. I hate to break it to you. You're not going to stop drinking. Well, <laughs> I mean, you might be too tired for like a week or two. And then like as stuff is happening, you're still going to be like, this just makes it easier. I mean, for right now, because I'm going to have to <laughs> drive her to the hospital. Like yeah. afterwards. Yes, I agree. Whiskey will be a mainstay. But yeah, you're not going anywhere. 
Well, you can't have too much now because at any moment <laughs> I could be the driver. Yeah. Like I could get a call right in the middle of a podcast and that would be mm. a, not a good time. But yeah. Wait, does your old car drive yet? The Scout? No. It has a roll bar as of today. Garbage car. What the hell did you do? I've spent more in like fixing it up than I spent on the truck. Mm-hmm. So like it's getting out of hand. So Robbie thought he had like a smart plan. So he was like, okay, we're going to get rid of the Range Rover and get a Tesla as a family vehicle. And I'll just get this old car. It'll be kind of like, oh, a farm truck slash I can just drive it down the street to the office and work. And it's like not a big deal because it's not that necessary. But he bought it and there were some issues and he took it to a shop who has fleeced him. They have not fleeced me. (laughs) They rebuilt the entire bottom end of the truck. Yes, they did. Mm. It looks much nicer underneath now. You're going to keep it for the rest of your life. Well, maybe. I don't know if you're into cars, Chris, or not, but. Uh, not not particularly, but uh, no. I can appreciate a terrible situation. Yeah. <laughs> I like cars. I know a little bit about cars. I fixed some cars and I'm like, oh, gosh, how did this happen? I know what you bought it on the Internet and didn't inspect it. OK. Yeah. So uh, I think I'm going to have to get going here. Yeah. But it's been great. Yeah. Great talking to you guys, as always. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We went a little over. Sorry for taking a little while. But. Oh, all good. I enjoyed it. Cool. I'll see you all later. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Catch everybody next time. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.